This is Love in Public. I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera. Hi there. I'm Abril Sawarsa Rivera, and you're listening to Love in Public. Today, I'm elated to be joined by Danny Olusoya. Danny is, oh gosh. That was good, that was good. <laughs> Where do I even begin? Danny is an undergraduate student at the University of British Columbia, majoring in history with a minor in gender, race, sexuality, and social justice. There's no other way to put it, Danny is a force of nature on this campus. Danny has served as the co-president of the UBC Black Student Union and has been an active member of the UBC, the largest student-run paper in Western Canada for the last four years. In June, Danny was appointed as the UBC's culture editor, marking the very first time a black woman has ever held a position on the UBC editorial board. If you read anything that Danny writes, you'll notice a unique quality to her journalism. It is marked by her sharp sensitivity as a writer and her unflinching clarity of purpose when it comes to the stories she chooses to tell. I first got to witness Danny in her element when she spoke at an International Women's Day reception held earlier this year. She had this unmistakable presence, a way about her that quietly commanded attention. And what I remember most vividly was how she delivered this empowering, down-to-earth speech in her favorite pair of well-worn sneakers. Danny, I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you today. That is ridiculously kind. Thank you. <laughs> I want to start by acknowledging this present moment, the heaviness of it, the uncertainty of it all, but also the quiet and mundane moments of delight and normalcy. I want to ask, how how have you been lately? Uh, I've, I've been trying to be like, oh, I'm great, because I don't want to like bring other people down. But also, this is kind of ridiculous. Like That is kind of how I feel about everything in terms of the fact that we're still working. We're kind of like pretending that there's a normal when there isn't a normal. We're doing a lot of like, yeah, we can like complete everything that we would normally complete in a day before we were in a global pandemic. I was like thinking this morning about how like everybody forgot that Trump had cor- has coronavirus. Like they've just, they've forgotten. Like it's, it's like, it was three days ago or like, no, it was a week ago now. So it's old news when it's like very, very important. Um, so in terms of how I'm doing, um, I'm like getting through each day, like day by day, but also like allowing myself to like not be this person, like this superwoman character who does all this stuff because that's like impossible. Absolutely. And I love how you touch upon this induced amnesia we're giving ourselves as a coping mechanism Mm -hmm. because every day you never know there's this newness and it feels like it never, it never rubs off. I want to dive into your childhood geographies because you grew up in two hometowns an entire ocean apart. Yeah. London, mm-hmm. England and Oakville, Ontario. I'd love to hear more about what that was like. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I grew up, I was born in London, I grew up in London. Um, and then, so there was a lot of stuff that happened to inspire the move. And I don't talk about it a lot of the time, but um, so I went to this high school. And I had great friends there and it wasn't the students, but my high school was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly 
deeply racist. And it actually took till this summer for me to figure out that it was racism. All I knew is that whenever I was there, I was like deeply miserable. Um, and as a kid, my parents had applied for a permanent residency card. So we were always like contemplating moving, but I basically kind of like almost put my foot down and I was like, I will not go to the school anymore. I will, I will fail my exams. I was like, I'm so serious. I will fail my exams so I cannot get back into the school. Um, I am not going there. So we kind of like moved to Canada and it was like this very quick thing where like we had a week off, like we had a half term. My parents took a plane to Canada and within the week they found a place to live. They found a school, they found everything. And then they flew back and they were like, so we're moving in two months. So it was like very, very quick. Overnight almost. Yeah. And so we had that summer to basically pack up our house. And then the next September I was in a new school, in a new city, in a new country for my grade 12. All of that adaptation for your senior year to be in an entirely different country. Yeah. Yeah. Where I knew no one, like no one at all. So that was weird. And was there a culture shock? Because obviously one was a very urban center mm -hmm. and then moving to, I don't know if Oakville is suburban or yeah. Oakville is suburban. Canadian suburbia. <laughs> like I lived in the suburbs of London and my school was mm -hmm. in like a completely different like town. But that with London and with the UK, it kind of, it's, it doesn't feel, it's not suburbia like North America has suburbs. Like there's just lots of people everywhere. And so um, Oakville was like a huge culture shock. The things, there were many things that shocked me and like scared me, like wearing my own clothes every day, like not having a uniform was like such a big shock to me. And then also I went to an all girls school. So it was the first time that I had like gone to school with people of different genders. Um, and I, that was like, that was pretty freaky. And um, I had no idea like what was going on. I was like, I don't know how to like coexist with like male identifying people in my classes. So that was a big thing. Um, yeah. And also just kind of like Canada is one of those places where there's, especially in high school, in the high school system. Did you go to high school here? No, I didn't. Um, they're very free and open. Um, is that like, is that vague? I no, mean, I don't think so. Like, they're kind of just like, here's, especially in the humanities, they're like, here's a class. It's very specific, but very general. Like, I was in a class called, like, Writer's Craft, which was just about writers, like, creative writing. Um, and then they're kind of like, do whatever you want. Like, we trust you to do whatever you want. Right, um, so a lot more freedom for you as a learner. Yes, which really helped. maybe you were used to. Which really, really helped. Mm -hmm. So that was, like, a big, like, confidence boost for me. Because um, I was so used to being like shut down and being told like, not told specifically that I was stupid, but also it would be inferred that there was something inherently wrong with me in the way my brain worked. So it was really good to have that like freedom. And it almost, having it almost be affirmative. Yeah. In you getting to make decisions about your own learning. Mm -hmm. And the teachers were so like, they gave me so much praise and I'd never heard praise like, but like, six or seven years I hadn't had any praise it was like even though I had teachers who cared about me like it's just so not English to like give somebody praise so the class where I did well I didn't get praise but the class I didn't get badly I did badly it was just so terrible it was like why don't you get this or like they would like yell at you and they just make you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and they wouldn't really tell you what how you were going wrong they would just kind of like sit you with the piece of paper and be like do it again like do it again and like it just made you feel like, made me feel very, very stupid. Um, but basically the summer when everything was going on, um, 
like I was also trying to like communicate with my pre previous school about like their racism and it just hit so many dead ends and I've learned so much about like the ways in which they work and like the historical ways that they've always tried to be like racist especially for their black students they don't like black students in their school tell me more about that because I always think about the way that racism manifests itself mm -hmm. in public or private schools even yeah. as being something quite covert yeah so when did that when did it dawn on you oh this is a reality I'm facing every day and it's not in my head I think like you you know racism like from a very young age, I always say that racism is like in the air. Um, in my primary school, um, there was one white kid or like two white kids. So even though there was stig there was stigma against like people because most of our instructors were white, like almost all of them were white, there wasn't because everybody there was so many like people who were like minorities and the minorities were the majority, who were kind of allowed to be a bit more. But then when I like moved on to secondary school and had um, like this different experience and it wasn't a, a scenario where like everybody was white, but it was kind of like very mixed. Um, that was kind of when I started to realize like, okay, like just tiny things like white girls are allowed to do this, but I'm not allowed to do this. Or like white girls are allowed to, allowed to dye their hair red. Like in 2012, everyone was dyeing their hair red, but like, my braids like we need to be black because if I don't have them black like it's gonna cause trouble and like the way that I'm being like looked at is being like more deeply surveilled than everyone else um and you really start to learn those tensions because you're like 11 or 12 and like kind of growing up in a new environment and then you realize like wait this is this card's like stacked up against me but you can never put like a finger on why because your brain's still developing and you're still kind of going through things mm. but yeah as you're speaking, it's making me think of one of the phrases from Bell Hooks' work that has always resonated with me, mm -hmm. and it's this politics of articulation. And she refers to how throughout her own life, mm -hmm. she's had to change the way that she speaks in order to incorporate a manner that tells a sense of place and confronts silence and inarticulateness. That makes me think about code switching mm -hmm. and the ways in which we change our behavior based on who we are around and the environments we're in. Yeah, like um, Kamala, like a couple of days ago, um, and the way, like somebody, I tweeted something about how, I could not remember what it was about, but then this this guy who went to my high school in Oakville, there was, they had their own set of issues, but he was like, um, oh, like why, why does she look so smug? And I'm like, it's not a smugness. Like she has to smile. Like if she doesn't smile, if she doesn't, present herself in this way if she doesn't have her hair straightened like that like you are going to call her aggressive and so she has to do everything she can like she has to do everything that she can even when she's like arguing <clears throat> in a place which is like in a setup which is set up for an argument she has to present herself as a non-threatening mm. person to appear thing. pleasant and like yeah yeah and people were still criticizing her facial expressions they were like oh well I think it was Megan Kelly who was like, well, you know, like she like you need to control your face like a woman. Like and so there was that. And then at the same time you had um a slew of people, women, who were tweeting, this is like what every woman is feels like in the boardroom. And it's like, no, that's not what every woman feels like in the boardroom. 
that's not true. Like you, when you're upset, like white women, some women are allowed to cry, right? In office spaces and this garner sympathy. Like some women are allowed to express anger in a way that will um, garner sympathy and they're allowed to, to, to kind of be, bring more of themselves to the workplace. Like racialized women have already had preconceived notions of who they are. So, and it, this kind of falls into like the racialized spectrum of like where like the triangulate triang triangulization of race, um, which probably which labels like Asian women um, and brown women as submissive and black women as like overly sexual and overly aggressive. And so there are all of these factors coming in and like bringing that into the workplace. And so that is not the experience of every woman, right? So I just I just kept seeing this tweet and it was like multiple people tweeting the same thing and then these would have like thousands and thousands and thousands of likes and I'm like but you don't understand that like she's doing so much mental gymnastics right now and like everybody's watching her face everybody's watching the way she says things everybody's here they're right there to police her tone right so you've put it so eloquently the question that's coming to mind is who is afforded emotion who is afforded humanity who is afforded rage mm -hmm. exactly exactly um so that's like kind of been a thing that I've had to deal with and like I think about it like even as like a little kid I knew and I learned this quite early on that like if I made another girl cry who wasn't black it was gonna be bad like so it didn't matter what they did to me if they weren't black and if I made them cry or if I said something and they started crying, this was going to come back on me like three times as hard, no matter what they did. And that is kind of like this understanding of like who is allowed to be fragile and also who is allowed to be a child. And um, oftentimes like black women are not allowed to be a child. Um, we're not allowed to be children. And so especially going through high school and realizing that like, every single thing I did, even if I got upset, even if I cried, like, wouldn't really matter. Um, there's a certain level of perfection that you have to, like, always achieve. Black women in society mm -hmm. are specifically hypersexualized. Yeah. And I want to bring up this quote from Eternity Martis, because we <sighs> both had the pleasure of hearing her speak earlier this summer. Yeah. And this is from her book. Uh, they said this would be fun. Great book. <laughs> Absolutely. I had learned the power of my body, female, brown-skinned, to inspire both desire and hatred to determine how I move through the world. The experience was painful and healing, ugly and beautiful. I am still trying to understand the charged nature of my existence in this world, one that is highly politicized and racialized. What does this mean to you? Yeah, I've never felt a scene as, like, a scene as reading that book, and I didn't think I would feel seen um in that way especially like a quarter of the way through the book halfway through the book especially when she was talking about like her relationship with how the white student in her class have you read the book yes i have that bit to me like it like hurt like it it really really hurt it hurt it was like laughing but i was like in pain in the same way and like there were so many times where i just had to shut the book and then like to the like sex over sexualization hypersexualization part um yeah, I mean, that's fully a thing. It's a, it's fully a thing here in Vancouver. Um, I didn't really think about it in the way that, like, Atanji did until I, like, read it in her words, right? And um, 
one of the things that I was literally talking to like with a friend right before this was about like how men in Vancouver see black women and how they treat them um and sometimes it really is just a sum of your parts or it's kind of like I want to like have an adventure with you whatever that means um or like just want to like kind of like go into the depths of the jungle and then it's kind of like it's not there's no real commitment there there's no like real expectation that this is like a relationship or like any kind of like union that's gonna last it's like one of those things that it's just like it's very short um and it's just so that somebody else can tick you off their checklist so you're not a real person um and so after like doing school like uni and now realizing that this is like a universal thing but also like this is something that doesn't start from when you become conscious of it it starts before you become conscious of it is highly disturbing but it's the truth and I think we need to know about it. I imagine that it must be so frustrating to experience 2020 with the upswell of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. We've had to bear witness to the continuation of senseless violence against black bodies, Mm -hmm. an ongoing lack of justice for those victims, and little to no accountability when it comes to these broken systems that have been designed to exclude and to silence. It's reached a boiling point, and we're getting this global consciousness about Mm -hmm. it, and yet this is something that black individuals have been painfully aware of for far too long. That must feel like a, a slap in the face. What about this situation frustrates you and conversely what brings you hope yeah um i'm gonna tell you right now don't know if i can answer second part of that question i yelled every day of june i yelled yelled like almost all of may like every day i would like look at my phone and i would just get so enraged by something or development or just the way in which it was like this was being discussed and also it was like the whole thing, the whole of like June and this like upswell in the Black Lives Matter movement was such like a um, like a catch-22 because all of a sudden people who did not care to hear you saw you and like there was a hyper visibility about being black but um, most of the time people don't want to hear you but there was a really like interesting thing happening where like people who I'm not friends with, people who I don't know people who I don't care for were coming out and they were messaging me and asking if there was anything they could do. Which told me that like, wow, I'm hyper visible in the way that I'm the only black person they know. Like if somebody who doesn't know you is going like, well, is going out of their way to message you, it means that they don't have somebody else to can message you closer. Um, and then at the same time, there was a lot of like pressure from multiple sources to basically work like all day to change the systems and they were requiring the labor of black people to to sort that out um and then what you actually do see is like a lot of that stuff has fallen flat because people don't really have to follow through they just have to say that they're going to so that was what was really frustrating and i just felt like very overwhelmed because i wanted to help and i always want to help but it just got to a point where i was like I can't spend all day talking about racism whilst also trying to navigate an eight hour time difference between here in the UK, trying to help this organ like this institution, which is like deeply entrenched, like racist. And at the same time, like be like in all of these meetings, 
like finding solutions for everybody whilst being not compensated. And on a micro level, you were inundated with all of this negative imagery on social media feeds and the added emotional labor of having to explain to others, this is how systemic racism works. I mean, I didn't even do that. Like I, <laughs> there were two, I don't, can't tell you how many messages were, but it was definitely like in the dozen, I would say about 50. And so after you're not, there's no way to have a conversation with everybody. And so I was literally just saying, thank you. Like, cause like, what else can you say? Like, it's just, it's too much. And um, at the beginning, so like around like the beginning of June, there were just was it three days or maybe a week where like I would just wake up and I would look at Twitter and I would doom scroll until like 2 a.m. Then I go to bed. And there was a week where I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to help. And like people were already reaching out to me like, how can we change? How can we change? How can we change? And I was like, I, I can't. And like then eventually I can't remember what like, I think it was something about my uh, school. Like I saw something, basically they threatened to sue their students for speaking out about racism. And that kind of like made me be like, oh, I've got to fight for the people who can't fight for themselves. And so like, unfortunately, like I'm going to have to like wake up to this and um, do the work that like is required of me. Um, and so I did it and I'm still tired. Like I still think I'm trying to sleep off like all of that work and like, um like get through that and like finally get to a place where I'm like ready to like do more but right now I'm like really really cautious about like my own body and my own health after that month because I don't think it was fun like it wasn't the moment that we don't we we're all waiting for so yeah and I was also like at the end of the day like a black man's dead like it's not this is not a cause of celebration at all and it's also not a cause of celebration that people um, went out into the streets to protest um, because at the same time there's a pandemic and they could die. So that is not like one of those things where I'm like, great, like at least people are out in the streets, like they shouldn't be, they should be alive. The conversation on race and policing has also brought attention to this host of systems that we have mm -hmm. that marginalize Black, Indigenous, people of color. Mm -hmm. And one unfortunate example is post-secondary education. Mm -hmm. As much as we want it to be, this is not a welcome space for everyone. There's a reason that we call it the ivory tower of academia. Throughout your time here at UBC, I want to ask, have you seen this? Have you experienced this at all? Yes, and also, like, I need to be aware of my privileges too, because um, I was in a meeting um, with, like, Ainsley Carey, who is a great man, <laughs> and also um, some other, like, Black students. Um, and one of the things that they mentioned that would happen is that when they got into group projects, that nobody would want to be in a group with them. And that's never happened to me. And so immediately my brain was like trying to interrogate why. And I was thinking about like, you know, I, the way I've been able, I've been forced to code switch my whole life has made me um, be able to signify some kind of intelligence. And also the fact that I have an English accent or had one, or it's, you know, it's messed up, but had an English accent um, also signifies intelligence because that is a colonial power. And so that is my privilege, right? Um, 
and I've also like was in the Greek system like I've just alummed for four three years and that was a place where all of this stuff that you talk about about the ivory tower and about like how like privilege is awarded that is like a huge like a microcosm for that and it's so clearly seen in the ways that these organizations act and who they uplift and who they don't uplift and who's like popular and who's not popular it's like a really it like really really shows you what that is and so i think there that's when i saw like the most exclusion um sometimes personally but like for also for other minorities um and then also it really like forced me to kind of like look inwards and be like okay like how am i benefiting from the system the fact that i'm able to pay um the fact that like um i'm able to like code switch to a to a point where i can like belong in this organization um so that those are my privileges too but there are so many people on this campus who because of the way they present themselves which has nothing to do with anything but just to be like where they like where they were like localized um they're not given the same opportunities that i have been given so they can't even do the work that i've done because they haven't been given the opportunity to do so and what do you think what do you think needs to be done so that we can reimagine campus spaces to be more inclusive i know that's a nebulous yeah. question that is like so difficult because like we're already on like stolen land um we benefit from the land that we've stolen um we're learning that one of the things that like i've been thinking about a lot especially as like a grsj minor we talk about people who can't have access to the ivory tower and we debate about their existence and we debate about what they should get and it's just it's this includes indigenous people um and we talk about them first of all as if they're not in our classes um but also as if like we are we as leaders need to protect them and so we know what's right and so we debate over their existence but like none of us like hardly any of us will ever experience that so like let's say for example like there's like a whole bunch of like white people in the philosophy class and then they're debating does black lives matter like they can't do that like they're debating it and they're having a like a uh, like vigorous debate but like they can't talk about my experience like they don't know racism it feels far removed it's so far removed and it's like one of the things that we afford ourselves and we say you know we encourage healthy debate we do, we encourage like a sharing of ideas but what we aren't doing at the same time is interrogating like whether the, the debates are even worth having without like actually knowing the real the real experience of who we're talking about so that's a huge thing and then you have other people who are like okay like let's just dismantle the whole system which you know sure but like how are we going to do that um you know and so it's so difficult to think about like how do we make it less oppressive because i'm not sure if every single time like these edi frameworks are going to fix everything right um so there is an answer but i think my answer and how i try to do it is really really think about the spaces i'm in the arguments i'm having and even the things that i'm posting because sometimes like these things are just so far removed from reality and it's all right well and good for me to say it but like the, these changes and this revolution wouldn't affect me in the same way it would affect somebody else and those people aren't even privy to that conversation so i couldn't agree with you more <laughs> yeah you are the kind of person who 
looks at the ways in which systems are failing us. You look for gaps and silences and you take matters into your own hands. I'm curious on whether there was a specific moment or event here at UBC that mm -hmm. spurred you to take initiative and step into a position of leadership. I feel like I've always been like this and well, for, for, for more time than I haven't been. Um, like in my grade 12, so when I moved to like a new country, new city, new school, I was doing the same thing. Like I just felt like I wanted to be helpful. Like I wanted to help other people and I wanted to be involved. Um, and I like being busy. And so my first year I was doing like all of these things and I was like, just telling myself like, why are you treating first year, like grade 12? And here I am my fifth year and we're doing the same thing. Like I just haven't really ever got out of that mindset of like, that I want to be helping people and I want to do things for other people. And also I just, I like, I like, I like being in charge. I'm not going to lie. I like it. Um, so yeah, this is kind of like a thing that's always been there. There isn't really, um, a moment, I think maybe from like my childhood that I'm wondering what that would be. I don't know what I'm answering. It's hard to even to yeah. go back that far. Yeah. Mm. I want to talk about your recent appointment as the culture editor at mm -hmm. the UBC. Firstly, I want to applaud you for it. It's no small feat. I want to ask about some of your goals and intentions as you're stepping into this new role. Yeah. Oh God. Um, so I, one of the reasons I chose UBC or wanted to come to UBC was because of the UBC, because I came to this campus wanting to be a journalist. I don't, but that's okay. <laughs> that is fine. That doesn't mean I don't love journalism and you know, I could change my mind like tomorrow, who knows? Um, but yeah, so it was always kind of like in my sights to want to do it, but I kind of got a bit like, like I kind of got a bit like lost on my way here. Cause I just found like so many other things that I wanted to do and so many other things that I found like more necessary and like important before I got to this position. So like running for me was a last minute decision. Cause I was just thinking, you know, maybe I should take my last year, do nothing. But then I was like, you're already bad at doing nothing. So maybe don't do nothing. Um, and then I kind of put my name forward um, and I got it. So that's awesome. In terms of like what I want um, to do for the culture section, I think the most important thing, especially being a couple months in now is trying to document this moment. This is so ridiculous. Like everything that's happening right now is there's so much and I really, really want to document how people feel, like how people are feeling right now. What is going on? Like, how do we make sense of it? How are we trying to make sense of it? And like, how are we going through our day to day? Because this isn't normal. This isn't normal for professors. Is it normal for faculty? Is it normal for us students? It's just like the whole UBC community and the whole hyperlocal community is struggling. Like we are not doing well collectively we're trying to grapple with the idea that all of the systems that are in place, including our healthcare system, our government, like our, like our policing system, everything that we relied on to keep us safe is failing. And it's been, it's failing so easily, like just after like a tiny shakeup, like it's a large shakeup, but it's also just like one thing has kind of forced all the systems to like really show like the ways in which they're, they're like failing all the gaps, right? It's as if with 2020, with this pandemic, mm -hmm. it's provided a snapshot of all these structural inequalities because yes. it's exacerbated everything that existed until this year. 
Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And so um, I really, really want to document that. And so my section is really interesting because culture could be, we're going to go to a play, we're going to review the play. And I love plays and I love music. So I'd love to do that. But it's also about like, how are people experiencing this campus? And I think in that mo this moment, that's incredibly, incredibly important. So that's kind of my hopes for this year. I'm excited to see what's in store. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> in an interview with the TAI, you were asked about navigating campus newsrooms, mm -hmm. spaces that have historically shut certain groups out. And you spoke about how journalists need to have a greater awareness of their blind spots. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Sometimes when... That makes me sound so smart. Okay. Um, because you are smart. Thank you. I, I'll think about that uh, whenever I don't feel smart. Uh, yeah. So again, as human beings, we have, the, uh, how do we start this? You know, like a really accessible way. There is no such thing as objectivity and journalism operates from a framework of objectivity, which means that like we, when we write an article, um, we are unbiased. I'm doing quotation marks on my fingers and that we, are like coming to a place like I'm writing about a place and then removing ourselves from the equation. Um, there's a piece by Donna Haraway um, and it has a name that I can't remember right now but um, and it talks about it's called The Persistence of Vision. So The Persistence of Vision by Donna Haraway and it talks about the God trick and it talks about how um, it's like very complicated but also once you get it you get it and it basically talks about how um, a, like objectivity in science in every discipline like basically removes yourself from the equation so you're kind of looking up above it as if you are a god and a deity and you're reporting on it as if like everybody is like completely isolated from yourself and so once reading that it kind of made me like draw those connections to journalism and I even heard like an art, uh, ad in like a CBC uh, podcast or it's a New York Times podcast and it was like where we are unbiased news, like we are writing completely objectively, there is no sway. But I'm like, you and your lived experience, that is already a point of view that you're never, ever, ever going to be able to remove. And so as journalists or as people who write news about other people, we really need to be aware of like, what is my experience? What is my positionality to what I'm writing about? And is this story for me? Because sometimes it isn't. And um, I think we all need to be really, really aware of like, okay, what like like if I'm writing about like indigenous people for example what is my relationship to the land how am I benefiting from this land and also do I have enough knowledge to report on this in an accurate and fair way to the story that I'm writing about so that's always something I'm trying to think about and I think that's what I mean by blind spots I'm thinking a lot about the interrelatedness between journalists and historians because mm -hmm. you're a history major mm -hmm. and I think about the ways in which we need to introduce this empathy and sensitivity to our work when we document history. Mm -hmm. How do you feel that you have found those connections while you've been studying history and then also been working as a journalist at the UBC? Yeah. History is the best subject ever. Um, if I, there's no, I mean, I was thinking like maybe I could go to uni and do journalism, but um, my history teacher in my secondary school, which I've talked about a lot today, um was like one of my biggest inspirations and she was like my biggest cheerleader and she was always pushing me to do more and kind of like made me just absolutely fall in love with the subject um it's the thing about history is 
when you learn it from a multiplicity of sources, you figure out that um, whoever tell whoever wins the war or whoever wins the battle tells the story. And knowing that, um, it really, really has shaped the way that I've done journalism because journalism is such a big instrument of that. That is how we figure out like where we are as a world, where we are as a nation, where we are as like people. Um, and so, yeah, the interconnectedness between history and journalism is so deep. But history is like supposed to be um, focused on the facts um, and the best way to find out like the truth, even though it's going to be like your, your truth, is to like read as much as possible and to find out as much as possible and to be educated so that when you're writing about a certain group of people, you know why is it that, that that group of people are in this position? Because normally it doesn't come from nowhere. Like every single thing that happened is kind of related or rooted in some kind of history. Like even the way that this campus functions, even the way the subjects that are chosen, that people can do, that is rooted in a history. So things don't just happen because they happen. Things happen because they're tied to something. I'm so curious mm -hmm. because I know you mentioned Donna Haraway's work. You're mentioning some of what you're reading with history. Is there anything recently that has shaken your world in terms of the way that you see history, social justice, journalism, the world? Yeah, I get like shocked by things every day. Yesterday night, I read a piece by Horse Child who kind of like coined the term emotional labor. I, I am changed. I just, I read it last night. Um, I'm behind, but I read it. And it was all about like the origins of emotional labor. And it was talking about flight attendants and how they have to almost like remove themselves from themselves to be able to perform their job. And that is kind of what emotional labor is. Like, you kind of have to like turn yourself off, but also at the same time, you have to project the sense of like hospitality, which is something that's often like something that women will have to do. Um, and so it like really, really, really made me think about the ways in which like emotional labor isn't just doing the work of like, but carrying emotions, but it's also this idea of like having to perform an act constantly and never being able to turn that off. And there was also a part in it is like, what happened when you get off that stage, right? Like, how do you respond to things? like when you are like allowed to feel for such a short amount of time. And I think about kind of like that in relation to like being a black woman or like being a racialized person or even like when, other, when people are queer or like whatever, like how performance is such a huge part of like how we deal with things. Um, and I'm also in a class right now uh, with Aisha Chowdhury who is phenomenal. Religious feminisms? Yes, phenomenal. And she said something about like how we should be very, like, think about the ways in which we perform gender. Like, we ourselves perform gender all the time. And that is, like, that is such a big thing that we need to think about. Like, the ways in which, like, we're, like, we are always acting for the world. And, like, who is our true self as a result of that. So, yeah, definitely re read that piece about emotional labor and flight attendance. It's, it's mind-blowing. I yeah. truly believe that we are what we read and mm -hmm. put that all so beautifully. Thank you. That's so kind of you. 
Danny, quite a few people who will be tuning in are first and second year university students. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but that definitely wasn't an effortless time for me. It's a period of your life where you're trying to figure everything out, mm -hmm. find your footing in a new environment. I often think about it as this time where you're being forced to adapt and evolve and yet you don't have your primary support system with you. Something that we don't talk about enough at university is failure. Mm -hmm. I definitely struggled with imposter syndrome my first few months here, but I know that it feels different for everyone. Can you think back to any moment of perceived failure in your first year? Yeah. Oh, okay. So my, so my second year was the worst time in my life. My first year, um, and this is like something that's really important to know. Um, so I'm a person who takes on a lot of things. It got to a point in my first year, second semester, right at the end of the semester, where I couldn't do the things that I signed up for. Like I was signing up for things and telling myself I could do it, but there just wasn't enough hours in the day. And there was just this time when like I completely broke down and I do not cry often at all. And I just had completely given up and I was so tired and I was so exhausted. Normally I have like a cry like one semester because I tired myself up to the point where I just need to cry. But it was the first time I'd cried in like years because I was just so tired. And I was like, why am I failing? Like, why can't I do all these things? Um, I've like, I, I just keep failing. And like, I also only had like half an hour to cry because I had to go and give out ice cream to like 3000 people as part of the Arts Undergraduate Society. And that sucked. So I was like looking at the time and I was like crying and I was like, oh. Timing your person. Timing your cry. I was like, I don't have time. And I was like changing, I was like crying. And then I just kind of like sucked it up. Um, so I would, I would believe that that was, that's, that's a moment. It's just so hard. Like you really, really want to do the best and like you're trying your absolute best, but sometimes you just can't do it. And sometimes you have to kind of be honest with yourself and be like, can I do the things that I'm saying I want to do? Or is it just, I want to achieve it? And like, why do I want to achieve it so bad? And here you speak about that particular experience. To me, it's not a moment of failure. It's a mm. moment of perceived failure. Mm. Is there anything that you would tell Danny then, knowing all that you yeah, do now? I would say don't do too many things. That's like the first thing, like as much as it's great and like all of those things have got me here, I would tell first year Danny, you need to like focus on you do like the things that you want to do and do them well. You don't have to do everything. And just because somebody says to sign up for something doesn't actually mean you have to do it. Um, and I would tell my second year self that as well. Like I really, really learned a lot about myself and I'm completely different than I was. Um, I think I've completely changed. Like the events of my second year kind of like forced me to grow up. Um, and also like to take, not take my life and everything for granted because I really did that and also just like sometimes you just got to slow down and um that's what I tell myself like it's great to have a stacked resume it's great for people to think that you're impressive but like at the end of the day if you don't have time to like sit with yourself then like you're not you're not winning so oh I wish we had all the time in the world yeah but I have one last question for you okay the title of this podcast makes reference to a powerful quote by Cornell West. Mm -hmm. Never forget that justice is just what love looks like in public. 
I want to close our conversation by asking what that means to you. What does love in public look like to you? I find the word love so complicated. It's such a big, it's like, it's such an overused word. What is that song? Oh my God. Where he's like, those three words are said too much, but not enough. That is so. I'm trying to think of it. I know yeah, the song you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. It's, um, that song. No. Chasing Cars. Yes, it is. Chasing Cars. Chasing Cars. And 14-year-old me was blown away. Um, but, yeah, so the idea of of justice and love, I think justice is something that we're always striving towards, right? And so so is love. And um, the idea of, like, justice, when somebody gets justice, that means that people have gone out of their way to make sure that that person gets what they deserve, right? That gets the outcome that they deserve. And that takes a huge amount of love because love is selfless and love is something that's always ongoing. And so justice isn't something that we like achieve and then stop achieving. Like when you love somebody, that's something that continues and goes on for as long as you live and maybe as long as, uh, like after the other person lives. And so that is kind of like, I can completely see the way that those two words completely tie together. Um, just in the same way that like, again, we're gonna love someone forever, you should try and seek justice forever. And so that's kind of like how I see those two words interlinked. What an inspiring note to end on. <laughs> Danny. I'm so grateful to you for carving out the time to be cool. here with me today. This is great, thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm Abril Sawar Rivera. And this has been Love in Public.